0: Artsville, Artsville, a happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain
1: high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers.
0: Greetings and salutations, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Artsville Podcast, where we celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. This is your host, Scott Sourdough-Power, and I am joined with my beloved colleagues, Louise Glickman and Daryl Slayton. Hey, guys. How How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing better now. It's so great to see you guys. Same here.
2: We're glad to be back at it. And we've just had an incredible response down in Artsville. And we're going to hear all about the very influential person who created this whole scene in Asheville.
0: Well, yes, yeah, for sure. Daryl?
2: Yeah, uh, that's uh, Artsville located in? the huge marquee, 50,000 square feet of arts and crafts and furniture and all sorts of cool stuff.
0: Right. So let's see. Yeah. Back up one sec, because what a lot of people don't realize is that Artsville just isn't a podcast. It's also an exhibition space there in Asheville at the new marquee development, which you just were talking about, Daryl, 50,000 square feet of arts and crafts and furniture and lighting and all kinds of things. And in fact, Marquis is a sort of the the brainchild and vision of a lighting designer artist, the one and only Robert Nicholas, who turned entrepreneur, a real estate developer <laughs> to build out this incredible old, what used to be just an old warehouse or some kind of industrial warehouse facility. And it had fallen into disrepair and just sitting there for years unused. And he had this grand vision to convert this 50,000 square feet dilapidated space into this gorgeous, beautiful exhibition hall, uh, so to speak, called Marquee. And so Artsville is, along with so many other artists and designers and artisans and craftspeople, we have an exhibition space there so people could come visit us there But, I mean, my hat's off. I have nothing but mad respect for Robert and his vision. I mean, he's got to be one stubborn guy to be able to pull this off. Like, that was a tough project.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, he really knows arts and retail and also upcycling and wonderful sort of retro finds, treasures. He had his own wonderful lighting shop where he took all things and created these inspired new lighting fixtures and something called Uncommon Market, which has been going on for three years. And he took all of that and really took a plunge here with marquee, And it's already becoming a destination for anybody who wants to do something with their home, buy a home, which so many people do here, or visit and take something home. So it's pretty remarkable, and he has been incredibly patient, and he even answers emails.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How's that for a landlord?
2: he's, he's, uh, He's good to work with. He's accommodating and gives, you know, lets us know what we can and cannot do, and he's put together a very eclectic group of vendors down at Marquee.
0: Yeah, it's a highly curated space, isn't it? He worked very hard to create a kind of an eclectic, diverse, you know, grouping of creatives there, and it really shines through.
2: Well, it's actually amazing because we curate our guest artists on a regular basis in our space, but he has over 100 vendors, and nothing is like anything else, and it's all very upscale, well-designed. He's got a great eye. He's done a really good job with this.
0: And, you know, talking to Robert for this episode, you know, I was reminded of that phrase, still waters run deep because he's the most calm, cool, collected guy. I mean, I, I was like, oh my God, if I had the amount of stress and responsibility that he has, just I'd be a mess and uh, he's just calm cool and (laughs) collected
2: he is yes we've had a number of uh, talks with him and he's just he's just cool he's chill because it helps now we have a bar marquee now too (laughs) have a bar.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they and they put it right outside his office. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's no accident. He, that was he curated the space, right? Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> well, I tell you what. Why don't we uh, roll tape on this and hear from Robert? What do you guys think? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only, the founder, artist, entrepreneur of Marquee there in Asheville, Robert Nicholas. Robert Nicholas, welcome to Artsville.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, this is exciting. We've been uh, talking about having you on the show for months now, but you've been a little busy, my friend. I understand you've had a little bit of a a project going on there in uh, Asheville, quaintly called Marquee. I've seen photos. This thing is anything but quaint, Uh, Mm -hmm. quite an epic project.
1: Yes, it has not been a just add water type of uh, opportunity. (laughs) It was quite daunting starting off with this but our doors are wide open and we are packed full of the best talent in the area as well as regionally and beyond
0: well the story as i have come to know it is one of those stories that feels very typical of an artist such as yourself right because artists in many ways are seers are visionaries they can literally see a pile of, of garbage, or in this case, an old building, <laughs> and see the potential, right? And next thing you know, you have this incredible artwork made out of that garbage or made out mm-hmm. of that old building. And as I understand it, this building, now a beautiful building, marquee, was a rundown old, maybe it was an old uh, warehouse or factory, a huge football field size kind of structure and you happened upon it one day a few years ago and just had a grand vision for it. Take us back to that day.
1: Yeah, well, so this, this property that Marquis is on is part of a 13-acre complex called Foundy Street. And some colleagues of mine purchased this property about eight years ago, and it was very derelict. I, there was not really one building that didn't need a total renovation. And I have had a brick and mortar store of nine years, a half mile from here. And ever since I got in there, I was looking to get out and make something, make a bigger splash because I was on the backside of a building in a basement feeling way, but it was still a fun space. But I kept thinking that there was more. And so when I kept hearing about what these guys had purchased and that 12 Bones Barbecue was relocating here. My neighbor next to my uh, brick-and-mortar wedge brewery was looking at doing a second location. I'm like, a second location a half mile away, something's going on down there. And I'd come down here, and it was like muddy, and it was dark and dingy. And so, I started nosing around in all the buildings at the time because none of them had been taken except for where 12 Bones Barbecue and the wedge were going. And there was still plenty of other buildings To choose from. And I would go through all of them, and they all of a sudden was like, I think I want this big one. They gave me a key to go in and just kind of look on my own because they were kind of busy looking at the others. And it was dark, dingy, had these big, heavy warehouse doors that took two people to roll them to the side just to be able to get in. Birds flying around, and the concrete was broken up. And I just kept thinking, gosh, this is pretty cool. But it was also kind of scary to think of what it would take. And so I, I started coming up with a business plan and I basically said, uh, I presented it and had a meeting with the guys, the owners. And I said, I can't do this without you. And they were like, well, let's just get these other buildings up and go on and let's revisit down the road. And so I was fine and I kept the key and would come down here and look in at different times of year because I was in a nice redone space that had air conditioning, heating. And I'd come in here midsummer. What does it feel like in here? It was sweltering. I'd come in in the midwinter. It was freezing. So I'd bring in some people, confidants and friends and say, hey, tell me if I'm crazy. (laughs) And they uh, walked around with me and said, we think you're crazy, but we've seen (laughs) you do it before. We kind of had our first building that we redid in Atlanta when we lived there. And it was in the inner city. And it had had a fire in it 30 years prior to us purchasing it. But it was a beautiful old stone building, 100 years old, lots of character. And the person that was selling it wouldn't even let me go in and look. So, I had to sneak in to just get a feel for it. It was a pile of rubble, but we ended up turning that into a showpiece when we were done. And so, it wasn't like we hadn't seen something like this. This was just 50 times larger. I mean, this is like you said, this is the size of a football field. It's uh, 50,000 square feet, one acre later of concrete. But during COVID, doors were shut at my store. It was this time two years ago that I kept thinking about it. And we weren't really sure what was going to happen with the whole COVID world and how we were going to rebound or if we were going to rebound. And so I went back to the guys and said, hey, I've tweaked my proposal and I think it's time. And they said, we think it is too. So it just began about eight months of working through what this would look like and getting the architects and the construction and all that together to begin the process of renovating this space. So that was, they started on a year ago, December, and it was one year and one week before they were finished with it and it became time to move in.
0: <laughs> well, that may be a Guinness World Record for turnaround, <laughs> certainly given all of the drama of the last couple of years. And I, you, know, you sort of touched on several things that I sort of want to talk about. And this comment as well, you sort of said that you kept the key to the building. And how many years ago was that? So like th- four years ago when you, when you first, seven years ago, when you first saw the building, And I love this idea of you going back and unlocking the door and walking the grounds and dodging birds and bats, but (laughs) letting the vision marinate in terms of what the potential of this structure and this space could be. And you truly have revolutionized the space. But of course, it does take a village. And, you know, God bless your friends who knew you were crazy and were honest about it. But that's what it takes, right? Because nothing gets done without a passionate vision that seems maybe a little crazy to other people, but is truly remarkable. And that's what Marquis is. Marquis is remarkable. And I've only seen photos. I have been to that area in the River Arts District, and and I've been to a few of the buildings on that property when I was there last spring. I mean, Marquis was very much still under construction. So I'm so looking forward to actually going because the energy, just from the photographs alone that I've seen, the energy there is just alive with creativity.
1: Yes, it is. But it really, the pictures really are not worth a thousand words. Mm, It really takes the experience of hitting your senses, I think, to really get a grasp of it.
0: So take us through some of the greatest challenges that you had We haven't mentioned the fact that, that, of course, so much of this happened during COVID. Mm -hmm. The last couple of years, the world is dodging a pandemic, and you're trying to build a retail space. (laughs) That in and of itself, right? It was scary because you don't know what the future holds. I mean, we obviously were hoping that life would get back to normal and your vision could be realized. But you're sort of in the middle of this project in this very uncertain time. That must have been very stressful.
1: It was, but... I don't know that it would have happened if it wasn't for COVID, but it's one thing when you're just in a routine, it's easy to just be on autopilot when you are just kind of living your passion day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year. And before you know it, seven years have ticked away in my small brick-and-mortar store. And even though it was something on my radar... It took COVID to really, I think, get me off of autopilot and to get me kind of going, seeking deeper in my heart and in my vision Uh. to really rethink it. Because over those years, you know, I would revisit the guys and said, you know, what's going on with the building? Well, we got a lot of people interested in it. And, you know, anytime I'd hear that, I was kind of like getting a little bit of a sucker punch, like, oh man. But at the same time, I told them from the beginning, I can't do this without your involvement. And their involvement was really being the heavy lifting of financing this project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm not thankful for COVID by any means, but I'm thankful that I was able to look at life differently, look at our finances differently, look at my vision differently, my family differently, and realize, you know what, I'm headed towards the 60 number of age and I'm not done. You know, I've still got a lot of life and energy and excitement ahead of me. And so it really helped to spur me on to have my doors closed, use my hands to do creative things that I wasn't doing prior to. I'm a lighting designer. I'm an antique and vintage buyer reseller. So I just had that all as a routine. I knew every month I'd go to a certain spot I, you know, where I'd be shopping, looking for things. Everything was just kind of routine. And so to me, I was glad to get knocked off my routine to be able to get refocused.
0: I'm so glad you brought up Splurge because that is the name of your company, right? In terms yeah. of your vintage lighting and your antiquing and so on and so right. forth. Yes. Yes. So, right. and, I, and go ahead.
1: Yeah. So... 30 years ago, splurge began in my heart because my wife and I had gotten married, bought our first home. We were in Jacksonville, Florida. We'd come out of college dorms. I was a residence hall director, had a fully furnished apartment. She was a resident assistant, had a furnished dorm room. And so when we got married and then we rented for a little while, that's was furnished, then we bought our first home. We're like, we don't have anything to fill it with. So Where's the I furniture? Started, yeah. So I started <laughs> garage sailing one time looking for a lawnmower. And I started seeing these antique dressers or antique tables. And I'd inquire, like, how much is that? And they say, oh, that's sold. And i say, well, what about that table that's sold? And I'm, like, looking at my watch and saying, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. And they said, well, you're late. And so, I kept Mm -hmm. thinking about that because this was pre-internet. This was pre-Facebook, Facebook Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist. So, you're relying on a newspaper to figure out where to go hunt and shop and look for things. And So, anyway, it kind of drove me towards a route of looking for things and being more competitive in the antique and hunting world. Mm -hmm. So, that was Mm kind of how splurge happened from doing antique shows and then realizing I'm tired of traveling I want to stay closer to my kids and my family. And so we opened up Splurge nine years ago, which allowed me to be home where Asheville became a place to really build more equity in my brand and in Mm -hmm. the River Arts District because that's where I really knew I wanted to be because my antiques and furnishings are more creative, even in the fact that someone else made it 80 years ago, but it was a one-off. It wasn't just a mass-produced thing that was just being done. So that's kind of how the whole the whole splurge world happened. But then I always wanted it to be in a bigger location and more of a, a destination point where I was surrounded by other creatives that would be more of a draw for mm-hmm. my business and everyone else's business.
0: So how did you go about, when you talk about the other creatives, how did you go about allocating space within marquee? I mean, was it a very sort of high touch hands-on curatorial jury kind of uh jury-ding kind of process? I mean, how did folks get the lucky opportunity to actually get space there in Marquee?
1: Yeah, great question because when I started this seven years ago, I began a list like who do I think would be crazy enough to come in here? Who can I sell this to? Because It was quite daunting bringing in some colleagues and people on my Rolodex into this same place that had broken concrete. Construction was going slow. It was not something that was like ready to just walk in like people right now. I mean, I get emails every day, new people wanting to be in here and applicants because now it's easy. You can see that you want to be in here. But a year ago when it was going through the same looks that I was doing and people were even saying, it's like, boy, this construction is take, looks like it's taking a lot longer. Are you sure you're going to be opening in uh, late summer? I'm like, well, that's what they're saying. So I had a lot of people who had faith in the relationship they had with me over the years that understood that this really does have the potential. The locals were a little easier to some extent because they knew the area, but it was the Folks that would be more regional, that were in the antique world, that were from Atlanta or Charleston, Charlotte, that would come in over here and had been to my shop. They'd look in this place. they go, boy, you sure have a vision. I want to hold off or I want in. So Mm -hmm. I had a mixed bag of the people that were early adopters. So when we opened, we were 90% full by the time it came to opening day, the first time we had... Customers coming in. But then, since then, we created 50 more spaces that are just more for artists, that are walls and hanging type of opportunities. And now it's like trying to beat them off with a stick, like, you know, you got to wait. You know, it's like, how long is the wait to get in here? I'm like, we've only been open three months. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it could be a year. It could, you know. So, yeah, it was challenging because you felt like people would scratch their head and think this is never going to happen. Right. Some of them have resurfaced and asked about space. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to wait. There was space a year ago.
0: <laughs> Early bird gets the worm. No That's doubt. Right. No. So let's break down the numbers for the listeners a little bit, because we've talked about Marquee being the size of a football field. And now we're talking about all the amazing creatives that are sort of exhibiting there. But give us some hard numbers. How many square feet is Marquee? How many exhibitors do you currently have right now? how do those exhibitors break down in terms of artists versus makers versus antique yeah. folks?
1: So when we opened the doors mid-December, we had about 115 folks. We've been calling them vendors. It's really because we're called marquee. In my past, it was always how many dealers do you have in there? Cause it was strictly antiques. Then we mixed antiques and artists together. And now it's like, we were calling them vendors, and then we were like, Well, we don't really like that terminology. So then we ended up calling them the cast because of marquee and the theatrics behind it. So we wanted it to be relative to everything. So we then became 100% full, and then we ended up going back to adding 50 more spaces. And at that point, you know, I had a waiting list and filled those spaces up within. You know, like six days. When we opened, we were about 50-50 antique vintage and artisan. So now that we opened up these other 50 spaces, those were strictly for artisan because they're hanging walls. They're four foot by eight foot. And those began to skew those numbers to probably where we're, we're now closer 75% artisan and 25, 30% vintage and antiques.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a lot. Those are big numbers.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: Those are big numbers. And then in terms of retail, the the actual commercial aspects, are, are each of the cast members responsible for their own transactional exchanges? So if I'm buying artwork, I'm buying it, and I'm doing the transaction with the artist, or is there a sort of a, a master plan in terms of making purchases?
1: Yeah, so we have a central point of sale, which is our front entry reception area. And Mm -hmm. it was very important to me that the reception area was right where you walk in the main front door Mm -hmm. and that it was very friendly. All of my staff have been hand selected. We never put up a now hiring. Mm -hmm. I basically went after people that I knew or I'd meet someone, I'd kind of watch them, I'd listen to them, I'd talk to them. And in the back of my mind, I thought, wow, they would be really good with people. They would probably work really well with marquee. And so I had this criteria. You had to have a background in either antiques and vintage, interior design or art or combination of, or just be a nice person Mm. with a nice smile. And the way that the whole sales work is, We get a sale commission from each of the artists. So we don't expect people to be in their space. Any purchase comes straight through the reception area. Mm -hmm. And we do like having the artists and vendors in there working on their space during hours because it shows energy. it, It allows opportunities for people to ask questions and talk to the cast member who rents that space. But we want to be very customer service friendly and oriented. So that's why we do everything through our main reception area.
0: So most of the artists that I've known over the years, Robert, always have seemingly a very interesting, eclectic journey to their practice as an artist. And in preparation for our chat today, I realized that you are no different, my friend. You have this incredible background as well. And at least as a young adult, you got your start as a youth pastor, correct? That's correct. So how does a youth pastor become a real estate developer? (laughs) (laughs) How does a youth pastor become an antique dealer? Take me through that journey. That's an amazing story, I bet.
1: Well, I mean, it was really simultaneous back to the yard sale and the lawnmower that I was seeing in young people. I typically was drawn to the ones that Were the troublemakers, the ones that the parents had the biggest problems with because Mm. I could relate from my childhood and being the one that was misunderstood and being the one that was more creative and didn't learn the same way that everybody else did. That I struggled with some with authority. I struggled some with the way things were taught. I didn't necessarily see the value of things that I had to learn in life even though I went to college for nine years with degrees, I didn't just play the whole time, but I saw the value in things that were typically being thrown away. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was with the antique vintage world, but it was also working simultaneously with the kids that I would come into contact with and have relationships with and build a bridge to their heart was their parents were ready to send them to military school. Like my parents did, mm-hmm. and they were not too far from Juvie. And so it was like seeing the diamond in the rough, it was seeing the value and the discarded. And, you know, I've mentioned that we bought that place in Atlanta in the inner city. Well, that was on purpose. We lived in the community and worked with children and youth and doing after school programs. And to me, the difference between ministry, church, and life really had more to do with really building bridges to people's hearts that were broken, that were hurting and wondered, does anybody see me? Does anybody see value in me? And so this is really kind of a grown-up version of me saying, I see value in you and not necessarily looking for the A-team, the greatest artists of the area, but looking for those that have potential and have value. And so there's quite a few in here that I've known over the years that I'd see their Instagram and realize, I didn't even know you did art. This is you. You did this. Let's talk. And then I was like, you know, I'm building this thing. I'm opening up this thing. I really want you to be in there. And so there's a handful of people in here that are in at a different rate level than someone else because they didn't have the confidence to come in. I was like, all right, how about I give you this space for free? And we do a 50-50 commission instead of rent plus commission. This way, you're out of pocket zero. Yes. And in three to four months, we'll reevaluate it, see how you're doing. And it's funny because just about everybody with that has all moved to the new terms of, you know what, I'm doing really well. Thanks for getting me in here. And now I want to do rent plus, you know, lower commission. So, that's kind of that transition of the grown up version of seeing value and the discarded and, and folks that maybe have a lower self esteem.
0: Wow. That's, I mean, that, that is a poignant, compelling story in part. You know, that phrase, seeing value in the discarded, that's a whole nother podcast right there <laughs> in terms of, you know, because we live in a culture that celebrates youth and we live in a culture that celebrates the new. You know, in a capitalistic society, it's it's all about consumption at the end of the day. Right. So it's like, well, the new shiny object. Right. And yet here we are surrounded by so many beautiful artifacts of our culture over the last 200 years, perhaps. And artists such as yourself are able to upcycle them, as they say, and breathe the second and third life uh, into these discarded objects. And as a youth pastor, it's doing that for human beings at the end of the day seems to be, well, I guess they would call it God's work. Hmm. Does an artist do God's work?
1: I think God gave him talent to stir something up, but to get a <laughs> start somewhere, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I love that. I love having that context and I love having that central vision. But, you know, I get the sense from what I'm reading and seeing with the marquee that while there's a central vision, it's also very eclectic. Uh, there's a really interesting mix of artists and artisans and aesthetics. And I guess, I don't know how intentional that is, but maybe my read on that is wrong. But can you speak to the curatorial mix of Marquee?
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely, we want a mix. Seems like in my experience in looking at art and artists and looking at magazines that are local that are, representing art and artists it's sometimes i feel like that a lot of times there's things that we call like a box or lines that all artists are trying to get out of but yet so many times we put them in the boxes because if you want to be an artist you paint or draw or you do a sculpture or you do pottery and There's tends to be this thing that we box in artists. I don't say I do or you do, Louise does, but it's kind of like choosing a major if you're going, if and when you go to college, these are your choices. And then you have to take courses to do these things within this nice little neat box of choices out there. And so for me, again, going back to seeing value and things other people would discard, it's like, There's so many things that have yet to be created, so many things that have yet to be designed. And I get more excited about seeing things I haven't seen, techniques, styles. You know, I think that's one reason I'm a lighting designer. I don't know a lot of lighting designers. And I create something that rooms are built around or spaces are built around instead of that doesn't fit in my style. It's like, we'll start over and put this in there and build around it. And when I look at these applications that come in and I see something that I use the term blows my skirt up, it's like, wow, that really stands out. This is something that hasn't been seen. It's not just a regurgitation of someone else painting a waterfall or a tree or a bear or creating another cup or a mug or a bowl, but it's it's really taking creativity outside the lines. So. There's a new person who just came in, an artist that makes clocks that are linear. It doesn't go round. It goes Mm. from left to right and it resets. I was like, that's awesome. I've not seen that. We have somebody that paints in 3D and you got to put on 3D glasses. That's awesome. That stands out. You got this older gentleman that you pull up an app on your Phone, and it's this painting all of a sudden turns into a cartoon. It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how who that crazy is, <laughs> is that? <laughs> when I saw Daryl and he showed me this, and I'm like, this is something a teenager would do. And Daryl is what? He's in his 60s, right? And I was like, this is crazy. This is so good. In fact, even, even on Saturday, somebody came up and said, there's this painting of this cat, a Mad Hatter. And I wonder if the artist would do any better. And I said, did you pull out your phone and just, did you see what this does? He had no idea. He was drawn to it the way it was. Sure, sure. We went back and we pulled up the app and he's like, oh my goodness. He goes, I'm paying full price. <laughs> I was like, absolutely, you are. It should be more. <laughs> if I did it, I'd put another one in front of it. You know, it's just in my mind, I read a book during all this COVID time, I was digging deep into entrepreneurs into the art movement and into art history, but I was kind of stuck in the 60s and 70s. There's a book called Boom, and it was written about the abstract art movement that happened in Soho and how you could take something that for the the common eye would look at and think, what is that? But it was going into these these high-end galleries with someone that had a name behind it And they were putting millions of dollars on things. And it was like, I thought if I could create a boom in Asheville where we bring in the best curated works, you don't have to know their name. And that was really, to me, even more important because these people, these artists from the 70s, when this whole abstract modernist movement happened, a lot of these names weren't known until they went into a gallery and someone said, this person's important this person's important. And that's really what I wanted marquee to be, is when you think about a marquee in itself, it usually represented a very special place. You think of these really high-end theaters with neon that would bring these talented shows and things. People would buy tickets and stand in line and bring their favorite friends and they would dress up. And there was an event behind it, but you were going in to see the talent behind the marquee. And so the name itself really was representative of having the most creatives that you don't even have to know their name. They're the best supporting actor or actress that you've never heard of, or they were you know as simple as maybe the stage crew that all of a sudden they were talented. It takes the whole group of people to pull off a production. And really, that's what happens inside of here. It is the talent that's behind the marquee that people talk about and want to come in and see and want to take some of it home.
0: Where were you when you came up with the name Marquee?
1: <laughs> well, so there were several different things that it, Boom was one of them. The Greatest Showman and watching that a couple times with my kids. I've got middle school, high school kids and with COVID, the kids are home And we were having movie days all the time because my store wasn't open and you didn't have to get up and go to school. You could do it on your own timing. So there was the greatest showman in watching that story unfold. And again, it was the misfits. It was the talent that didn't look like everybody else. There was a book called Water for Elephants that created that whole circus world of bringing in how the circus traveled by train. And it was before internet way before, you know, it was just how they got the attention and they put up this big top and people would just come in droves. And the the original name was Big Top. And then the greatest showman kind of changed that even though there was a big top, but it was just, I was just seeing a marquee and I've always been drawn to great vintage signs and great old neon. And so it just kind of happened, you know, of coming up with something that was epic, monumental, and it wasn't an exact name of, you know, it didn't say antiques. It didn't say artisan. It just, to me, it just says, I got to go under that sign and into this building and see what Marquis is all about.
0: So how much more square footage does Splurge have now in Marquis versus the square footage you had before?
1: I've doubled in size Mm -hmm. and I took six large spaces in here Mm-hmm. And part of it was to hold on to because it's it's up near the front where we're programming the food, the bar, the kind of a hot little spot. But everything that I brought into here and then everything that I brought in since then that's new to Marquee and new to Splurge, I just have more room to breathe. My lighting fixtures have more room where they were pretty tight. I moved from a 1,400 square foot space at Splurge to where my house lights in here are splurge lights. They're not for sale, but I can reproduce and sell them. And they're eight foot by eight foot. You know, that wouldn't have fit real well inside of 1,400 square feet. And inside of that 1,400 square foot of splurge was also my workspace. So probably 1,000 square feet was retail. And the other 400, we were squeezing in trying to create more lighting fixtures. Now I've got a separate... Workspace. So now it's all retail and showroom.
0: Well, how do you even have time to make more pieces? <laughs> Between being a, a husband, a father, a business owner, a property manager, <laughs> where do you find time to be an artist?
1: So most of my art now is as a designer. So I have a young man that's been working with me for seven years and he came as just someone to help me for a while. And Found out that he was more than just a helper, that he's got an architect background degree, but decided after he graduated college, he didn't want to do the architecture world, but he wanted to use his hands and his creativity. So he works for me a couple of days a week and I meet with him. I have these ideas. I bring this piece and we brainstorm of how to make this a magnificent piece. And so, now we're getting to the point, instead of doing production of something, we could do a hundred of them if we wanted to or needed to, now we're just trying to make each piece grander, bigger, better, of more value as well, because we're just making the piece more art. So, I touch everything, Uh but he's the one that does the mechanics of it. So, that's really where my business of Splurge has grown to. I mean, I felt like I did most of my greatest hands-on art pieces during COVID because I jumped on this movement of what's called Artist Support Pledge. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It started No, out of what Europe. is that? So when COVID was definitely probably April, May, two years ago, somewhere out of Europe became this movement called Artist Support Pledge. And it was saying, make things for under $200, put them on your social media, hashtag Artist Support Pledge, and once you sell $1,000 worth, you pledge to buy back from another supporting artist $200 worth from them. Mm -hmm. And so I was watching this happen with other artists and colleagues. And I kept getting messages, you need to do this, you need to do this. I'm like, I don't know how to make anything under $200. And I'm a lighting designer, and I don't know how to do it. And so I started digging around in my work area, these, found these boxes of parts and pieces and things that I was thinking I would add accoutrements onto light fixtures at some point. And I started playing around and putting this together using light lighting hardware, but it wasn't making a light fixture. And I was like, oh, that looks like $50. And it took me 30 minutes. And, <laughs> and so each day became this competition where I was making something new and sometimes I could make five of the same thing with different variances. And people were buying it, you know, this is 75, this is a hundred, this is two hundred. And I ended up making over two hundred items in three months period and was proud of it. And simultaneously, it was very therapeutic because I'm wondering how am I going to pay my bills and do everything and It just became this thing while I'm listening to Boom or other books and things on streaming in my ears, and then I'm doing this creative, and then I'm making notes over here for Marquee. It was just almost like this incubator of creativity that was all happening at once, and my bills were getting paid. And so we also were able to purchase some really great art from other local artists that were doing the same type thing, and it just felt really good. I'm
0: wondering how much art you have and how you display it. I don't. I wonder if you have the same problem I have. My wife has cut me off. She said no more buying art <laughs> <laughs> because there's no more space. But you, you're the luckiest guy, right? Because you get to live in this huge space with art with artists all the time, and that feeds your spirit. That feeds your soul. So you don't necessarily have to buy when uh, <laughs> when you're living immersed <laughs> in this positive energy. Robert, I love your vision. Obviously, it's so exciting. And I and I can't wait to go and visit for myself, hopefully next month. But take me through, because I mean, your vision, obviously, you've had this vision for a while. You've got the doors open now. You're operating. You're an artist. I know artists. I know you have a vision for the next one, three, five, ten 10 years. What does Marquee look like five years from now?
1: Gosh, I don't know. I mean, It's interesting because I feel like every week it gets better. Like I keep finding what I think are epic things. I was just in West Virginia this last week. That's where I grew up. Small town. My mom and dad are still alive. My dad's 94. My mom's 87. And my dad needs a little extra. And every time I go up there, I come back with something that I wasn't expected to find. And... It's like I found these six foot tall food dogs, which are these Asian guard dogs. I mean, they're six foot tall. They're fiberglass. They're 40 years old. They may have been outside of an Asian restaurant. And I'm like, those will look great at Marquee. Mm-hmm. And people will say, like, how do you find this stuff? And I'm like, it finds me. I can't. <laughs> it's so hard to not run into something because my eyes are always open. And I feel like with Marquee, when I walk through here, I see, oh, we could add this over here. And so the the key is that we don't crowd it, but that we continue to just not let it go on autopilot, but see how we can keep making it better and tweaking it and curating it. And so I foresee it being in my mind when people are Googling what to do when you come to Asheville or to Western North Carolina, that marquee is the first thing you see and then maybe the Biltmore then maybe the brewery tours, then maybe the downtown area. But I told my social media guys, I said, that's where I want to be ranked. Not me, but Marquis, because Marquis represents 200 of me's that have an idea, that have this passion or this inkling to try something a little bit different. So I think there'll be more food opportunities with Marquis. You know, one of my goals is to hit all five senses, We've got the visual dialed in pretty good. We've got the audio. We have great music in here. That was really key for me was you walk in and you are hit with a soundtrack of something that makes you feel good and that your taste buds can be stimulated. We have beer, wine and some drinks and food is one of the things that I think will help with the smell and the taste and, you know, and then to touch, you know, I mean, there's some of, a lot of the art is touchable. So, you know, I just want all senses to be hip. As you're walking up, you begin feeling this excitement and this energy of, I want to go in there. And then as you open it up, it just, it's almost like going to some place at Disney. We went there to Animal Kingdom where they have the Avatar world, where it's like these senses and this magic to where everything's very magical feeling. Mm. So again, the key is not on autopilot and just keep making it better.
0: When you talk about the five senses, it reminded me of something I want to ask you about because you being an artist, first of all, but having been sort of carving out your your practice around seeing the value in discarded things. My wife often teases me because when we travel, she will often find me lost in an antique shop. Now, I'm not a collector. I'm not a dealer, but I love going into antique shops because of the energy, the romance Maybe it's all in my head, but I feel this compelling energy that gets to the human story, that gets to romance, it gets to tragedy, that gets to just the existential struggles of humanity over decades and centuries. And I'm just trying to imagine who these people were that made these things and bought these things and used these things. And now here they are in a store. And I'm holding them or looking at them, or I'm just I'm experiencing them through my senses. I mean. As an artist, Robert, as, as a dealer, what is that energy? What what am I feeling? What is it about antiques that stimulate that sense of magnetism that I seem to be feeling?
1: Well, I think it's hitting your emotions. Either it's something that you could relate to from a childhood, if it was positive, or it could have been a grandmother, your family, or a movie or something you saw my 13-year-old just brought up the other day. She likes Stranger Things and was from the 80s. And she goes, that seems like that would have been a fun time to grow up. I said, it was. We didn't <laughs> need phones. You know, it's like we'd get off the bus and everyone knew where we were going to meet. And we'd get on our bikes and we'd end up there. And so I really feel like for me, the antique vintage world, you're kind of recycling history when you take something whether it was 50 years old, 40 years old, 200 years old, but you're recycling, you're keeping that alive. And yeah, you wonder whose home it was in. Was it a good thing, positive thing? And, but it's trying to give things a new home and to imagine how would that look in my space. So for me, I was never a hunter. I, I like to fish, even though I just didn't really have the opportunities or don't have it. But it was always that thrill that you were going to reel something in, or I guess for a hunter that you were going to get the big buck. And I find that when I go antiquing, I'm sniffing, looking, and it's the thrill of the hunt of finding something that was misplaced within this whole mall. I hit antique malls when I'm traveling like you do. And I'm looking for something that just doesn't fit into someone else's space and think, Wow, if I took that out of this context and put it into my context, it feels special. It feels better. And so it's kind of like cherry picking. But there's also a lot of disappointment because there's a lot of crap out there that people try to recycle that probably should go to the dump. (laughs) You know, that doesn't have that value because there definitely was times and things that were not made as well that were just mass produced. And there's just so much of it out there. But again, it's one man's junk is another man's or woman's treasure. And for me, I get excited every time I get to go somewhere to hunt and find something because I'm like, if it's in here, I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> it's called treasure hunting,
0: right? Uh, is, yeah. You're a treasure hunter. So what about uncommon market? Talk about uncommon market and will that continue to be a thing? You know, what What is your vision yeah. for
1: that? So, when we relocated to Asheville 17 years ago, my daughter was one year old and we lived, like I said, in that place in the inner city. We were like, we can't do this here. I can't raise her here. And because I was doing antique shows at the time with my wife and with her, because when she was very young, we thought we would open an antique show in the area because there was really nothing here. There was Charlotte, which is two hours away, Atlanta, three and a half hours away, but there wasn't really anything like it. They had high, high end antique show at the Civic Center, but it was very unapproachable, very high end and it was more of an older crowd. There wasn't anything stirring the younger crowd. I use the term, but I don't like brown furniture. I don't like brown anything. You know, it's like brown's not my color. And so a lot of the high end fine antiques are brown. And they're Mm -hmm. also, you know, growing up and visiting the house that I grew up in this last week there were all these memories of rooms that I wasn't allowed in. And I've used the phrase that my name has been attached to antiques since I was a kid of, Robert, don't touch that. Robert, get away from that. Robert, don't sit on that. Robert, don't put your cup on there. And I just didn't like antiques. And I didn't really like that at the time. But when my wife and I started in the world of finding things at yard sales, and they were very approachable and things that you weren't going to ruin. And sometimes it was the life that it lived that made it really have more of an appeal because of the patina or the way that the grandma used it. So when we moved here wanting to start an antique show, it just wasn't time for that. And there weren't really locations and spaces. And plus, I didn't know that many people here. And so nine years ago, I started getting this idea of doing like a flea market Mm. But it was a flea market like a Brooklyn flea in New York that was, or a European flea market or Randolph Street in Chicago. So we started it and we called it Asheville Flea for y'all. <laughs> it went great. It just went off the chain. We outgrew the location in two years. And at the same time, we were getting very, very accomplished artists that were doing jewelry and doing craft that they were making mixed in with the antiques and vintage. And what was happening, because we are still a little rural around the outskirts of Asheville, we'd get a lot of people that would treat it like a flea market and would begin to dicker with people and, and almost to an insulting in something that someone crafted or someone spent a lot of time finding that their things didn't really have the value that they were trying to sell it for. So we rebranded and became Uncommon Market. And so once we outgrew our other space, we went to the Asheville outlets that had lots of parking, but it was the outlets and it was five miles from Asheville and it just wasn't cool. And so when we rebranded it, we moved to the River Arts District. And now this is our third season doing it on location at the complex where Marquee is. So we close off the street and we've grown up from 40 vendors to we were sold out for most of our shows last year at 120 vendors. And it becomes a pop-up tent city for the day. We have music and food trucks, and it just becomes a really fun thing that, again, we have a waiting list for that. my wife has actually taken that over solely because as Marquee, I just said, I will support you and help you the way you support and help me, but you've got to take the reins of that. And she pretty much was doing 75 to 80% of it. All along anyway. So now I just kind of do more of the PR and the help set up. And then rest of the time I'm out buying, shopping, and in the past recruiting for marquee of the standout vendors that would show up at Uncommon Market. So we do six outdoor ones here starting April 24th, our first one. And then we do a holiday market that is at AB Tech. They have like an event space there, which is indoor. And we've actually taken over a 31-year-old antique street show, antique show in Hendersonville, which is uh, about 20 miles from here. Uh And so, all of these really are feeders of continuing to to stir up the artisan and the antiques, and really create really a special place to come to Asheville and Western North Carolina for the best of the best in the creative world.
0: Well, Robert, I mean, I'm listening to all of this, and I'm so envious because I'm I'm out here in California, and I can't get there to these amazing <laughs> events. Is there opportunities for e-commerce? Are you looking at how you can help or work with either your vendors at Uncommon Market or the artists or artisans at Marquee to then bring these things online for sale for those of us who can't seem to get to Asheville?
1: Yeah. It was interesting because I've told my staff, I said, don't do what I talk about because when I talk ideas, they're ideas. And sometimes I need to just flesh them out by talking Mm -hmm. about it. Don't Mm -hmm. think that that's exactly the next move we're going to make, but I need to be able to bounce it off and see what sticks. And so about four months before we opened Marquee, I had this idea. What if? All of Marquee was online. Mm. What if we had every single item in here online? Wouldn't that be cool? Who does that? You got your big box places. That's easy because all reproducible and, Mm. you know, you can get thousands of the same thing. And so we started chasing that for a little while until we opened. And our inventory is over 9,000 items inside (laughs) of here. And stuff sells every day, every week. And it's like to spend 15, 20 minutes posting this item times, let's say you do half or let's say you do a quarter or let's say you do two things from everybody's space. I think it would almost be like a dog chasing its tail. Yes. And I would lay in bed thinking about this almost like, it's like doing this Rubik's cube that I could never finish. And- it was bringing me more anxiety to think about trying to <laughs> yeah. do that than it was excitement or joy. And so I just took a step back and one of the staff people that's that's on staff that works with us was going to kind of head that up. And I said, let's just wait because I don't want to spend all this money for you doing that. And again, we just can't keep up. It's right. it just
0: Yeah. I mean, what's cool about that? I mean, I can see, I mean, by the way, as a practical matter, I totally get it, right? It's like (laughs) 9,000 pieces. Oh my God, what are we Amazon? No. But the fact that people can go to the marquee website and discover the artists and the makers and the artisans that are exhibiting there. And to the extent that through the website, they can maybe email them or contact them for a commission or for a custom job or something like this. That's the beauty of what you're doing in a marquee is connecting your cast with people that want to enjoy their work.
1: Well, I think too, it's, it's almost like going to a Broadway show or a movie theater or to Fox theater in Atlanta to see a production gets watered down when you watch it on your TV. Yes. And it's really hard to, yes. And I think that art is so subjective Uh. and, you really have to see this in person to really get it. And what if it gets shipped and it's like, oh, the colors look different on the the photograph. It doesn't match my curtains, you know? And so I was thinking of the negatives of of returns and just not being represented as well. (laughs) And it's like, you know, Amazon can ship for free. We can't. And then we got to do return labels and pay for that. You know, it's just...
0: Yes, yes. I
1: think it's still the beauty of what we're trying to do is do something that, the Amazon world of where our customers are so used to click and ship, right? Than having something that's so unique that has to be experienced. So yes, yes. There's a purity of that, yes, and not watering it down to where it's Etsy that I can make twenty five of these, and it's just I can print off and make giclées and make prints, huh. and and that's that's one of the things too. We've really tried to encourage. Less prints and more originals because the originals cost more to buy it, but it also is worth more to buy it. You know, it's like, yes, I would rather have an original than a print or a copy any day. And I think that the value of that, again, it's like an antique or vintage. You're buying something Mm. that should gain value. Mm. And so buy it now while these guys are getting started in this.
0: Well, and there's certain value in that rite of passage that comes from the effort of having to go see a work of art. I mean, there's only one Mona Lisa and you can only go one place to see it, right? Like, and you've either been there and seen it in all of its glory or you have Mm not but that's part of it, right? That agency, that sort of intention to go see that art. And so much of art is like that, you know, that you can only go to the Met to see certain pieces or you can only go to... MoMA to see certain pieces. Well, guess what? You can only go to Marquee to see what's at Marquee. And that is a truly special gift that you're giving to the world, Robert Nicholas. Thank you so much for coming on to Artsville today and talking about the great work that you're doing there for Asheville and its incredible community of artists.
1: Thank you. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me and asking uh, some great questions because I love sharing about this pretty passionate place of ours here in Asheville.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on. And I hope to see you face to face next month.
1: Absolutely. Look forward to it.
0: All right, Robert. Have a great day.
1: Thanks. You too. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, a happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville,
1: feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. Oh, that's where you'll find us amazing artists and designers.
0: Ich will